0: Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. I'm your host, Aaron Johnstone. Today we're responding to the question, does God care about rising sea levels? A question not only relevant to the future, but for the now. Climate change continues to be one of, if not the largest challenge, that world leaders face. And coming up with adequate and timely solutions continues to divide perplex and deflate the inhabitants of this beautiful planet that we call home, the only planet that we call home. So this week, we thought we'd talk to Professor Matt King from UTAS to help us think about sea levels in particular.
1: These are not small trivial matters. Just because sea level sort of creeps up on you doesn't mean that it's something we can ignore as a society, as a population or an economy.
0: Matt is the professor of polar geodesy at the University of Tasmania and is the director of the Australian Centre for Excellence in Antarctic Science, which is a national collaboration of eight universities and dozens of other partners focused on helping prepare humanity for the climate risks emerging from East Antarctica and the Southern Ocean. Matt has published more than 140 scientific journal publications, including several in the most famous scientific journals Science and Nature. His research has been recognised by the Award of Medals from the Royal Society of London and the Australian Academy of Sciences. Welcome to the show,
1: Matt. Great to be here with you, Aaron.
0: One thing I'd love to get to the bottom of nice and early, I'm not sure whether I've been fed a malicious lie of disinformation, maybe you can clarify it for me, but does Antarctica literally mean place of no bears?
1: Look, I think I think that's actually right. Uh, the, the Arctic, I think, means bear, uh, um, literally, and Antarctic. Uh, means the opposite of uh, Arctic. So I guess it means no bears, which is good things for the penguins. Um, you will find many cartoons and drawings of polar bears and penguins hanging out together. Um, but it's a lie. It's a lie. Maybe maybe it's a lie promulgated by polar bears uh, in order to get <laughs> a little bit closer to penguins. Right.
0: So there is something malicious going on there that, perhaps. Perhaps so. Okay. And the other bugbear I have, I've wanted to get to the bottom of for a while, um, is... Do you know why Americans don't pronounce Antarctica properly? Why they say Antarctica?
1: Look, I I really don't know, Aaron. I think it's it's just in the uh, the bucket of mysteries that goes along with aluminum and buoy. There is a T, and even the Antarctic scientists from the US often miss out that first T, and it's uh, yeah, it drives us mad. Yeah, mystery.
0: So, were you always into science? And uh, how did you get into Antarctic science in particular?
1: Oh, look, I mean, loads of scientists have got this wonderful science story where they're always outside, you know, looking at rocks or bugs or creatures. That was not me. Uh, I was always outside playing cricket, pretty much. And when I was inside, I was either watching cricket or as the first sort of home computers started to come out and we got one in our home, I started to get into uh, computers, started to do a little bit of primary school coding on computers. I'd always liked maths, and maths and computers go really well together. Uh, and so, so maths and computers was my thing. Um, I was pretty good at science through school, but it wasn't a driving passion for me. And I really just fell into science, probably at the back end of my surveying degree, actually. So what happened there is that I I probably thought I was going to go out to be a professional surveyor I'd worked on the in the west west coast of Tasmania uh, as part of my degree working underground in a in a big tin mine uh on the west coast and really enjoyed that work and I sort of presumed that that's what you know I would end up doing but later in the degree I I started to get into the sort of the higher levels of surveying where you're doing using satellite positioning to, you know, position things on the surface of the Earth to to a centimetre or, you know, even a millimetre, learning about the changing shape of the Earth and and how it's not just a sort of a fixed thing. Um, And so that really started to get me interested in doing a bit of research. And so I did an honours year, a a research year on that sort of thing. And then I got into my PhD topic, which was going actually, we can use this technology to understand a bit of ice in Antarctica and how it's changing. I hadn't really even thought about Antarctica, to be honest, at that stage. I, You know, growing up in Tasmania, I guess I had a vague awareness that Antarctica was a thing to the south of us, but I I hadn't really thought about it. I wasn't an avid uh, follower of Shackleton and Mawson and their heroic exploits. It just came my way. My supervisor said, oh, here's a PhD project would you be interested in it? And, and then once I got into it, you know, it really led from there one step to another. So no, I didn't have the sort of traditional start to a scientist career. It really did sort of stumble into me almost.
0: Yeah. And uh, have you actually been to that giant massive ice Antarctica?
1: Yeah. During that PhD, I did did go to Antarctica. I was there for four months plus a couple of weeks either side in the Southern Ocean uh, and I must say that the Southern Ocean and I don't really agree with each other. I was strapped to my bunk for three or four days either way, uh, surviving off grated apple or something like that, darting to the bathroom and then back again to, to get horizontal once more or as horizontal as you can in the Southern Ocean. So didn't uh, have your sea legs? No, did not have my sea legs uh, at all. Once I got to the sea ice, though, things changed completely. So you get to the edge of the, the frozen ocean, the sea ice, and the the, the swell dies down completely. You start to see icebergs, penguins, whales, seals. Uh, The vast expanse of Antarctica starts to creep up on you. It obviously gets colder and colder and colder. Uh, And that's where the wonder of Antarctica started to hit. And then when we got to Antarctica, I was doing the field work that required us to, you know, wonderfully fly around in helicopters for probably about 40 hours of flying in helicopters all along a transect of Antarctica, probably... Uh, more than a 1,000 kilometres long. Uh, we camped out in the deep field in Antarctica. That that actually was probably the first time I'd ever camped in a tent. Uh, it was in Antarctica. It was minus 24 degrees one night. A great experience, you know, dr- driving around on snowmobiles on this big bit of ice in order to try and measure how it was moving and in, in different locations and comparing that to measurements made in the 1960s. Uh, and so that was the core part of my PhD thesis, Uh, That data collection and comparing it to earlier data sets. And we were able to show that actually that bit of Antarctica hadn't changed uh, really at all uh, in the three decades that we had measurements. So it was a tremendous experience. It was, it was one unforgettable in many regards, even just some of the, the quieter moments sitting on top of a little rock outcrop on the coast of Antarctica and seeing these beautifully white snow. Petrels, these birds just flying around on the breeze. We you know, saw thousands of Adelie penguins, which are sort of large versions of a, of a uh, Antarctic chicken, really in some regards. They're they're uh, they've got great characters, and they, you know they stink. Just we saw we saw orcas, we, we saw whales. You know, just it felt like being in a place that very few people had been to, and in some places it was absolutely a place that people hadn't been to. Uh, So, you know, just a really special occasion. I haven't been back since, but I've had people in the field in Antarctica in different places doing work for me pretty much every year since about 2006.
0: One of the amazing things that I enjoyed looking into for this episode was the the way that the the sea ice around the most southern continent um, contracts and expands uh, as it melts and refreezes seasonally. It's been called Antarctica's Heartbeat. And um, there was even some uh, amazing like NASA footage which shows it expanding and retreating. And it even looks a bit like uh, a heart in shape when you look at Antarctica. So could you tell us a bit about what role the sea ice plays in the environment and the ocean and uh, and then what's been happening to the sea ice over the last few years as well?
1: It's an amazing uh, natural feature of Antarctica where one of the largest seasonal cycles on the planet where the the frozen ocean, which is the sea ice around Antarctica, grows by, you know, out from Antarctica by hundreds of kilometres in the winter. And then in the wintertime, it shrinks back down towards the Antarctic coastline. It never completely goes away. But you can imagine that sort of growing out and coming back in, growing out and coming back in. That's, that's what people are sort of referring to by a heartbeat of the planet. And it's not just a sort of visual metaphor. There is a real sense in which that, that natural cycle drives a lot of what happens in the Earth system. Uh, so as the sea ice forms, as the ocean freezes around Antarctica, there's salt that's forced out from the water as it becomes ice, and that salt sinks down into the water column. Uh, and that contributes to uh, what people call the one of these gla- global conveyor belts that occurs in the ocean, where water is being moved from Antarctica down deep into the depths of the abyssal ocean, as they call it, keeps on flowing uh, northward when it pops up at various locations in the equator or even uh, far in the northern hemisphere where then it begins to return back towards the southern hemisphere along the surface and then sinks down again and so on. And so there's this connection between the Antarctic and the tropics and the northern uh, hemisphere um, that is very real and the sea ice is really at the part of that. And as that water moves around, it's transporting heat so it's taking heat from the tropics up to the um you know the west coast of britain it stops britain being as cold as canada just across the atlantic but it also takes uh, nutrients from deep in the ocean and brings them up to the surface uh in the tropics and in the northern hemisphere uh, and those nutrients are what uh, much of our marine ecosystems feed off and ultimately our fisheries rely on and so this beating heartbeat of Antarctica, this, this freezing and thawing of, and then melting of the sea ice drives that process. And, and so while it might seem, you know, visually appealing and interesting, it's not just an academic interest. It actually matters to each of us in terms of, uh, how life works on our planet. And what's been happening in the last few years is that, well, if we go back to 1979, the launch of the first satellites that gave us imagery of sea ice around Antarctica, year-round imagery, and then we could map out the extent of that sea ice and so you could measure that over um, weeks and months and years and now decades. And so from 1979 until about 2015, the sea ice around Antarctica was actually growing uh, ever so slightly or, or certainly not shrinking Pretty much a, a flat line, it was going up and down uh, between years and so on, but pretty much you draw a straight line through the trend of that sea ice extent. And then in 2015-16, it sort of fell off a cliff. We lost the equivalent of the area of South Australia. You know, there's a big chunk of sea ice that just disappeared. It recovered a little bit in a few years afterwards. And then last year and then this year again, we've broken the minimum record further and so now there's the question that's being asked uh, amongst the scientific community. Are we entering uh, a new regime? Are we seeing the beginning of the decline of Antarctic sea ice? That, that of course, is completely consistent with a warming planet. Uh, we fully expect that that will occur at some stage, the beginning of a decline in the next decades to centuries. But are we now, after actually amazing stability, starting to see something happening? It's a live question. We don't know the answers to it, but we're going to be watching it pretty carefully.
0: Just for the non-scientific background um, and myself, who uh, I'm completely scientifically illiterate. What's the difference between an iceberg and a glacier?
1: Yeah, so the best way to think about ice is really to think of slow moving rivers. I think it's a, it's a good starting point at least. So um, you can imagine a river system way up on the top of the river system. It, it rains that rain finds its way into little valleys. The valleys sort of fill up with water, becomes a river. They join up eventually with other bits of river and becomes a big river and it flows out of the ocean. Antarctica is very similar to that. Obviously, it's not liquid water, but it's. It, if you see an image of the observations of Antarctica, you see that you have ice that flows hundreds of kilometres into the interior of the ice sheet. It's flowing out slowly at maybe 10 metres a year and then it gets faster and faster as it moves towards the coast. It's 20 metres a year, 50 metres a year, joining up with other tributary systems, becoming wider and bigger and faster flowing. By the time it gets to the edge of the coast, it might be flowing at a kilometre a year and then it flows out into the ocean uh, just like a river. But unlike a river, Antarctica doesn't stay... You know, a river flows out and it just becomes part of the ocean. You can't tell. Obviously, when you get a glacier, these flowing ice, and it hits the ocean, then something has to happen. Uh, And what happens is uh, it tends to snap off in terms of icebergs, so it breaks off, uh, and that's an iceberg. The icebergs flow away and head off to the north and start to melt and eventually just disappear into the ocean, or it melts from below by the ocean. Uh, Either way, it eventually melts, but icebergs are just big bits of broken-off glacier. And they're entirely normal and natural parts of the system. People tend to get freaked out by, you know, um, icebergs the size of Manhattan uh, breaking off Antarctica. Most of the time, that's just completely normal. Uh, if Antarctica didn't break off bits of ice, Antarctica would just grow and grow and grow until it filled up the whole planet. So it has to break off bits of ice uh, eventually. It's where things change, where the icebergs melt or uh, break off more frequently. Uh, or it melts more from underneath because of ocean uh, warming, that's when it really means that things are changing dramatically. And in some areas of Antarctica and Greenland, we're definitely seeing that.
0: Digging into your research a bit, from what I understand, you, you came up with a fairly novel way of measuring landmass and therefore how much ice is being lost to climate change. Could you explain that a bit more?
1: So, so, and I wouldn't say that I came up with the idea, we certainly applied a technique. So, So in 2002... An amazing satellite mission was launched called the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, GRACE, the GRACE mission. It's actually two satellites and these two satellites orbit the Earth and they're about 200 kilometres apart from each other and they measure the distance between the satellites and they measure that distance very precisely, like to the thickness, to a 50th of of a human hair. Oh, wow. And they're measuring that distance because the satellites move slightly closer or further apart from each other. And they do that because Earth's gravitational field varies from location to location. So people might, just if we go back a bit, people m- will probably remember f- from science uh, at high school that gravity equals 9.81 metres per second per second or something like that. Some, I remember people,
0: zero, just to be clear.
1: That's, okay, okay. Well, some people might remember 9.81 metres per second per second. As it turns out, if you go to about the sixth decimal place of that number... Well, that varies as uh, things like glaciers melt. So, so what Newton told us that, that the gravity uh, force is a function of the distance you are from something squared and the two masses, your mass and something else's mass. And so if a glacier is melting and going to the ocean, its mass is changing, so the gravitational force is changing, mm. um, and these satellites are sensitive to that. So as they orbit over let's say, the Himalayas and the glaciers that sit on the Himalayas. Well, the lead satellites gravitationally attracted to the Himalayas more than the Hind satellite because it's closer. And then as it passes over, you can imagine the Hind satellite being um, more attracted to the Himalayas than, than the lead one, and that distance between the two of those changing over time. Um, and then over months and years, you can build up a series of maps of how the Earth's gravity field is changing over time. And you can turn that those maps into maps of mass, uh, mass change. Um, and so you can infer, you know, how much is the glacier losing in terms of its mass? And so we uh, applied that to Antarctica. Uh, and so it, the Antarctic mass change is really saying how much is Antarctica contributing to sea level? So we were working on that problem. How do we use these satellites effectively to um, measure the changing mass of the whole Antarctic ice sheet and some of the bits within it.
0: So how long have scientists been tracking sea levels and thawing icebergs?
1: Yeah, sea level science is a much older science than Antarctic uh, science. And really sort of detailed sea level science started with people installing tide gauges, which were installed not for sea level, of course, but for tides and for navigation. But there was a, a growing awareness in the 1800s, 1900s that the land seemed to have been moving relative to the ocean, that was tied to the movement of the great the changes in the great ice sheets, the last glacial maximum in the past, where sea levels were one hundred and twenty meters lower, there were big ice sheets in Scandinavia and North America and antarctica was on on, on average larger, and Greenland was larger and all was, all that weight of ice came off the land since the last glacial maximum. The land has been rebounding and lifting up, and so there was a desire to actually use, first of all, to use the tide gauge measurements that have been collected over decades, I guess, at that stage, to try and track the land motion. But then it increasingly became clear that it wasn't just the land that was moving, but the sea was moving as well, that the sea levels were rising. And we started to get our first good measurements of that in, um I think, the 1970s and 1980s, uh, whether, uh, all based on tide gauges. Then, in the 1990s, again, satellite data came to the bear to measure, for the first time from space the elevation of the sea. Um, and by about the 2010s, there was some work, some of it which I was involved with, that actually started to detect not just a trend in sea level, but a quite a clear acceleration. So over the 20th century, sea levels rose by about 16 centimeters, so about 1.6 millimeters per year over the century. Over the last century, um, that's now, so that 1.6 millimeters a year is now turned into about four millimeters per year. So there's, you know, a very clear acceleration, um, that's occurred. Um, and of course it's just going to get faster, um, unless we can do something quite substantial with the climate. It'll, it'll still go up. It's sea levels are locked in certain amounts of sea levels are locked in 30 centimeters or so at the minimum. The question is how much worse do we want to make it because it, it could be well over 80 centimetres if the worst comes to bear in terms of uh, climate change.
0: When did it become clear that this might be a serious problem in terms of sea levels?
1: Yeah, so until until about 2011, there was no agreement whether Antarctica was growing or shrinking. So we'd been studying Antarctica fairly intensely since the late 1950s. There was really a sort of an explosion of scientific endeavour. The first decades of that were really people driving around on snowmobiles or flying around in a- aircraft. There were no satellites. You could measure bits of the the continent, but there was no complete coverage of understanding not only how, to, how it worked, but how it was changing. You know, th- those were, were really beyond the measurements you could do from the ground. So it was only really in the satellite era that you could actually measure all of Antarctica and get a complete view. Uh, and... The satellite measurements of Antarctica increased, really commenced in the in the early 1990s, and then you just need enough time to accumulate to be able to work out how it's changing. So there, there are three main approaches to measuring how Antarctica changes. There's the GRACE approach. There's an approach where you measure the the elevation of the ice sheet and monitor that changing over time, and you do that from space uh, as well. And then there's another approach where you measure effectively how much ice is flowing into the ocean and you try and model how much snow's falling in Antarctica and you difference those two big numbers and that gives you the, the changing mass as well. So there's three different approaches. In 2011, a group of scientists came together, pulled together by NASA and the European Space Agency and I was part of that group uh, of international people who came and actually said, what are our different estimates of the changing mass of Antarctica that had previously been positive or negative, and got together and actually worked out why and came up with a reconciled estimate, the first reconciled agreed-upon estimate of Antarctica's contribution to sea level. So that's that's what happened in 2011. Uh, That was a pretty big moment. You know, the science continues to go on and understand these things more. But for the first time in history, we knew that Antarctica was losing mass. It was contributing mass into the ocean. At that stage, it was about 60 billion tonnes per year. Uh, of ice that was going into the ocean that wasn't replaced by snowfall. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, 60, 60 billion tonnes a year is is a lot. Um, you know, when you spread that over the o- the world's oceans, it's actually, you know, only about uh, 0.2 millimetres per year. Uh, it's increased since then. But, but also, so you think, oh, well, a big number just became a small number when you think about that. But actually, if you've ever stood on the edge of the Pacific Ocean and stared across the Pacific, you think about the volume of water required to even increase it by a millimetre. Uh, that's a vast amount of water. Um, and so that gives you the impression, you know, and th- there, are, there are bits of Antarctica that are changing dramatically and, and increasingly so.
0: And with the rising temperatures, um, according to a piece in the conversation in May uh, this year, 90% of excess heat energy goes into the ocean. And, and they compared it like, um, so they said ocean heating is not so much a canary in a coal mine, but a threshing shark we've inadvertently, at least initially, hauled up into our fishing boat. So my question is, do you know much about how we measure sea temperatures around the globe and and kind of what's happening there in that space?
1: Yeah, yeah. And all of that's exactly right. If the oceans hadn't been taking up all of that heat, then the air and the land temperatures would have warmed uh, much more dramatically than they have. Um, So the oceans have been doing us a favour. Obviously, that ocean heat has an impact on the ocean, on the ecosystems that live on the ocean. You know, we see we're seeing migration of species poleward to get to ocean temperatures that are they're more comfortable and and happier to live in. Obviously, those that are already in the polar regions eventually get to a point where they can't go further south or further north, and that that's not good news for them. But how do you measure ocean temperature? Well, in the old days, they would you know you'd be sailing ships and they would be letting thermometers off the edge and measuring the the temperature uh, through very manual means and uh, around the year 2000, starting in about the year 2000, there was a, a dramatic commencement of the deployment of robotic sensors. Uh, and so these are sort of about one and a half metres tall. Uh, they're called Argo floats. They're one and a half metres tall, about 20 centimetres wide. I guess they look a little bit like a missile, but they, they get thrown off the edge of a boat. And um, rather than just making one measurement of the ocean, they automatically uh, go up and down through the water column generally down to, you know, three or four, uh, three kilometres, four kilometres. Some of them now go down, you know, to the depths of six kilometres. Yeah. Uh, and every 10 days they're sampling up and down through the water column, measuring the salinity and the temperature of the ocean. And then and they'll drift around the ocean following the currents at depths. And just so, so there are now thousands of these floats that are, that are providing uh, almost real-time data, every, certainly every 10 days, information on on what the ocean is doing. And one of the great challenges that we face right now is how do we get those measurements increasingly in the um, high-latitude polar regions where there's ice cover? And so the teams are working on ice detection algorithms so that the they pop up only when there's no ice above them, for instance. And so that's uh, increasing our, our knowledge of the polar regions as well and the warming that's going on in those areas also.
0: Yeah, okay. So pretty impressive technology that's been developed.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And super, they're actually super reliable, which is the wonderful thing. You know, you know, often technology just takes a long time to, to bed down. These have worked very quickly and uh, been a great success story in oceanography.
0: Just thinking about the other pole, um, do you have much to do with scientists who, who measure the Arctic and the North Pole? Um, what, what have they been finding?
1: Yeah, so lots of things going on in the Arctic, and part of that is driven by what they call the polar amplification of global warming. So we expect polar regions to warm faster than the planet does on average, and that's what we've seen in the Arctic. We haven't seen that so much in the Antarctic, uh, in part because of atmospheric processes and oceanic processes that protect Antarctica from the rest of the system, but eventually that'll catch up. So in the Arctic, uh, we've seen warming of several degrees over the recent half a century or so. We've seen dramatic decline in the area of sea ice in the Arctic, uh, so the frozen ocean. Uh, You don't need to be a scientist using advanced techniques to see it. Everyone could go to NASA website or the National Snow and Ice Data Centre website uh, in the US, look at the graph and just see that it's fallen off a cliff in terms of its volume, in terms of its extent, uh of course now people are talking about navigating through the northwest passage cheaper and faster shipping routes um from europe through to um uh, you know the west coast of the us or through to asia so dramatic changes going on there and that has dramatic impacts on uh the ecosystems that that live underneath the sea ice this is the same for antarctica as well is that is that are it's not just frozen ice uh, that we're talking about here. There's microbial algae that grows on the bottom. If you turn over sea ice, it looks green in colour. There's biological activity that's sitting on the bottom of that. Marine life feeds off that sea ice. Uh, And in the Antarctic, uh, a lot of what feeds off it is actually krill. Krill is what whales eat, seals eat. And so it really sits and it's a massive fishery in its own right. And so you take away the, the sea ice, you take away uh, the microbial algae, uh, you take away the krill. And so there's profound implications uh, for ecosystems. The Arctic is different. Just, just to clarify, the Arctic is different to the Antarctic. Antarctica is land with a great big amount of ice on top of it, surrounded by the ocean. The Arctic is a big bit of ocean surrounded by land. So it works very differently. Uh, So we have the Arctic with its sea ice. It's been declining around the ocean. We have Greenland, for instance, which, you know, has a big um, uh, bit of ice sitting on top of it. It's been losing mass as well. It's been melting at the surface because the air temperatures have been increasing there. It's been flowing faster as um, as the ocean starts to eat away at it because of increased ocean temperatures. It's gone from changing somewhat in the early 1990s to contributing and being perhaps the, the dominant player in sea level rise present day. So dramatic things going on there. And then you can go to the small glaciers in Alaska and uh, so on and you just see you know almost universal retreat of those glaciers. And so um, some politicians have talked about
0: things like adaptation and mitigation when it comes to the risk of climate change. And like sea levels rising a few metres here and there, that, that doesn't sound that bad, does it? Like, can, can you explain why it's a concern?
1: It's a concern because um, even centimetres of sea level rise brings tremendous amounts of our built infrastructure, our homes uh, and human population into harm's way when it comes to sea level, Uh, and in some cases in the existence of a nation or not. Um, We go to the Pacific Islands to start with. There are some Pacific Island nations that have more than half of their entire built infrastructure Within a couple of hundred meters of, sea, of the coastline, and so you think about the vulnerability that exists there, the the, the difficulty in adapting uh, when you're a you know sort of a, a coral atoll and you've got maximum elevation of a meter or two meters or something like that, uh, and you've got half of your infrastructure or maybe even seventy percent of your infrastructure within a couple of hundred meters of the coast, just profoundly exposed. Uh, and then in other countries where in australia we've got 230 billion dollars worth of infrastructure within a meter of sea level so that's roads and rail and and uh, factories and houses and so on 40,000 people's homes sort of uh, highly or very highly exposed to near future uh, sea level rise uh, and then you go around right around the world and by 2100 there's expected to be Even in the best-case scenario, about 190 million people within the reach of high tide, as it will be in 2100, and in the high-end scenario, so really at the pessimistic end of things, uh, that 190 million people goes to 630 million people. So, you know, heading towards a billion people uh, within the reach of a regular high tide. So... These are not small trivial matters. Just because sea level sort of creeps up on you doesn't mean that it's something we can ignore as a society, as a population or an economy. Yeah, so we'll have vast impacts. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And so every centimetre you can avoid of sea level rise is possibly billions, trillions of dollars even uh, of money saved um, that you don't have to adapt to, let, let alone sort of the social and emotional cost of, you know, moving populations and abandoning homes and things like that that just bring great grief to people.
0: Like you mentioned, one billion there, and I remember hearing a, a similar number. I think from Bill McKibben. That's a lot of the the world being upended with uh, climate refugees, um, people having to find new places to live because uh, where they live is uninhabitable.
1: That's right, and um, and of course these things are disproportionately set against the poorest of the world, you know the the rich of the world don't generally reside in low-lying deltas, that the the tropics are the areas that are going to feel the worst of climate change of all kinds, and sea levels certainly are right up there in terms of who's going to get bitten by it. And with sea levels, like obviously that is one problem, but they're all connected,
0: aren't they? Um, as uh, sea levels rise, there are also other factors at play
1: um, yeah. the climate change and they all cascade, don't they? That, they, they that's don't. right. So so if you imagine a situation at a coast, lots of our towns and cities are built at river mouths. So um, if you get sea level rise, that's sort of adding the centimetres and millimetres year on year on year and then you get more intense storm activity because there's just more energy in the, in the climate system, so you get more intense storms. Uh, associated with that storm, you might get a, a storm surge in the ocean that drives the ocean up. In addition to the sea level rise, you might have an extreme rainfall event that's associated with that storm. Uh, so you get more rainfall coming down the river, and that's running into a, a wall of water coming the other direction. In terms of a storm surge, uh, you get stronger winds driving waves up onto the shore. So you get a compounding events, uh, and this is something that's you know very much a real thing in um, in climate research. Whether it's about sea level or other things, compounding events really do make Changes that are pretty bad into some things that are very nasty. Yeah, and that's where it gets pretty scary for people all over
0: the globe, isn't it? Like in, in Australia, we've experienced um, seems more floods uh, in the last 12, 24 months.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and these are things that are entirely consistent with climate change. You know, I guess there was a view uh, a few decades ago that it was just about a long term warming. You know, people use the term global warming, but climate change is much more complicated than that. Um, and you get you just generally, there is the longer term warming in general, but there's just much, many more extreme events. And, and when it comes to sea level, by the end of the century, we could be in a situation where a one in a hundred year event, let's say like a storm surge, is actually almost everywhere every year. Uh, so that's a profound change to what we're used to. You know, something that's extremely rare becomes common. Living in
0: Tasmania, it's been referred to sometimes as a, a climate refuge or um, yeah. <laughs> sanctuary or something like that. Um, so we, we seem to be not totally immune but at least protected from some of those things.
1: Well, I think our job in Tasmania is to not tell people about that, Aaron, to tell people to stay away and leave this place alone for those of us here. Uh, it's a horrible place. Don't come. Um, Look, uh, I think everywhere is being affected. The east coast of Tasmania, the waters off the east coast of Tasmania are some of the warmest warming on the planet uh, and have been for several decades. The the East uh, Australian Current, uh, made famous by Finding Nemo, uh, has been extending further south, bringing warm water with it. That's had profound impacts on the massive kelp that grows in the ocean, the ecosystems there. Exotic species now, uh, in terms of fish coming uh, south. So, even in Tasmania, which is, you know, in some regards, not as vulnerable as some places that are right on the edge of survivability, if you like, right now, um, we're already seeing big changes and uh, we'll continue to see more changes. And, you know, in some of the areas of our capital city here in Hobart, we'll see substantial inundation by the sea unless there's remedial action. And local councils are having those conversations now with residents about, you know, what do we do? Do we do we retreat? You know, we're not going to build, you know, 10 kilometer long seawalls to protect the coastline. So there are difficult conversations to have. The important thing is to have those sort of openly and early uh, so people can think about what, what response they can have.
0: As a Christian, do you think that God is concerned about rising sea levels? And uh, are there parts of scripture or theological teachings that impact the way that you think and talk about it?
1: Yeah, I think I think God is concerned because People are involved. Uh, people are, as we've talked about, are being negatively affected by climate change and are going to be uh, increasingly negatively affected, uh, and the poor and vulnerable most of all. And so th- there's, you know, this straightforward teaching of Jesus to, to love your neighbour as yourself, and, um, and so it does cause me pause to think, well, am I behaving in, in a way, am I acting in a way, via the climate system, via carbon emissions and and so on, in a way that is loving of my neighbour, whether they be in a Bangladeshi fisherman or someone living in the the Pacific. So it it causes me to think about that quite a lot, and I think that's right for us to be thinking about that. There's a broader creation care narrative in there as well, in that um, if you step back from sea level to sort of broader climate change, are we behaving in a way that actually cares for creation? Are we doing what we should be doing in terms of caring and managing the world in a way that 's loving and in a way that God himself would manage the world and and I, and I think especially now that we have a really clear understanding that uh, climate change is real that humans are driving all of the climate change that we 've seen since the 1950s, you know can we actually truthfully say that we're doing our best? while burning, uh, continuing to burn fossil fuels? Well, I'd have to say, actually, no, uh, that's a mismanagement of creation and we need to really think about rapidly changing our behaviours now that we're across it. So I think there's a love your neighbour piece, but there's also, uh, yeah, just straightforward caring for creation under God's rule in a way that he requires of all of humanity.
0: In the past, you've spoken about as well that when we see these sorts of things happening uh, as a Christian you can kind of relate it to like just the outworkings of of what we call sin um, and human greed and selfishness and those sorts of things as well. Uh, Does that uh, play into your thinking much at all?
1: Yeah, because I think in rejecting God, uh, well, actually the the Bible would say that actually you would expect that to go as badly as it possibly could unless God held that bad action back. Um, And in fact, you know, that's really what the Bible says is that that God is restraining the – the worst of what humanity uh, is doing in terms of rejecting him. And so if God says, look after my planet and care for it well, well, then you'd expect in rejecting God that we'd probably do almost all we could to not do care for the planet well. We'd probably try and snuff out the stars if we, we could, and maybe we're on the way to doing that with some of the interstellar exploration. Hopefully we'll learn from this climate change situation that actually we need to do a lot better job with caring for the creation.
0: I guess another question in my mind: Christians have a bit of a reputation for being climate denialists, or at least in some some circles. Um, you're obviously in the world of science. Are there other Christians out there that are doing the climate science thing and uh, really helping with the the future of, of our planet and thinking through the scientific implications?
1: Yeah, look, I'm I'm by no means the lone Christian out there, uh, and from time to time I. Um, I bump into other scientists who work in this area who I find out are Christians as well. There's one person that, uh, that is really quite prominent in this area in the US, uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who's a professor of, uh, climate science at one of the universities in Texas, you know, not, not known for its, uh, championing of climate action in Texas, but she's done a, uh, a wonderful job of being able to talk to small community groups, church groups, et cetera. And find common ground with those people and help them understand actually that some of their values and the things they value are actually under threat from climate change. Um, but there's also opportunity in rapidly uh, adapting, even saving money uh, in the process of, uh, you know, for instance, you know, putting solar panels on your roof is not just good for the climate, but it's good for your back pocket ultimately in many cases. So there are people like uh, Catherine Hayhoe, uh who are doing that. Um, You know, there's a whole bunch of people out there who are just busily getting on with science but also have a profound Christian faith and are bringing to bear their Christian faith on the world of science. A
0: lot of this stuff can get pretty just full on to think about. So what do you do in your downtime to kind of, I guess, pull yourself away from it if if it's ever getting you down?
1: Um, Yeah, look, uh, certainly a lot of people working in the broad area of climate or anything that's affected by climate do struggle with this, you know, that there's, there's a sense, sense of, um, climate grief or climate anxiety, uh, that affects people and other people, other scientists working in that area who do, do experience that tend to find hope in being able to do at least small things that, or, or, or tell people about the small activities, the local activities they can do that can actually make a difference. I don't experience that sort of like echo grief, uh, climate anxiety to the extent that some people do it's concerning but i just don't i guess i just don't have that personality that sort of gets anxious about those things i mean i'm looking to do certain things you know i was in a position recently where i could install solar panels on our house and i could do that in the mind of getting a ordering an ev in the near future because we needed a new car anyhow and so i was able to to work towards that over a period of time but I'm not. I wasn't losing sleep over it. Um, I, I guess that's just because of my personality. Not because there's nothing to be concerned about. I, I want to be really clear. There are profound changes to our Earth system coming and already being experienced. You know, we don't always see them if you're, you know, living in the city and you know, etc. But the bushfires we've seen in Australia recently, are unprecedented, really. The marine heat waves we're seeing in the ocean are being exacerbated by warming ocean uh, from the climate change. We're seeing species that are going extinct and increasingly um, more so. So there are things to be worried about in that sense of the word. I'm just not losing sleep over them, but I'm quietly just trying to do the what I can uh, to contribute. In terms of the downtime, well, you know, I like good coffee. Uh, I like coffee and I don't mind watching you know, some stuff on Netflix, Aaron, to, to chill out. Of course, I'm part of a my local church. Uh, I, I get along there. I'm part of that community. You know, it's, it's great to be part of a, a broader group of people who are doing things that are also important. So what's your feel about where
0: churches are
1: and kind of how they're
0: tackling this? Like, do you feel there's a fair bit of divergence or like uh, what are you seeing?
1: Yeah, look, there's certainly... um many reactions to climate change in the churches there is out of the church, um, I would say, which I would also say is perhaps a bit, one, not surprising necessarily because, you know, people who are part of a church are normal, ordinary people who read the same newspapers and watch the same news as everyone else. Um, so you don't expect them to be perhaps, perhaps any more in or less informed than the average um, person in the world. But I do... I do think that the Bible has something to say that should inform or allow us to critique some of those perspectives. So we certainly see uh, people who are, who are very suspicious of anything that's related to the environment movement, that, uh, and hence climate change might be viewed as an environmental issue, and hence a political issue, and so sort of dismissed because I'm not interested in green politics, and hence I'm not interested in climate change. It can't be true. And then people naturally go off and find some ideas that reinforce that view or that scepticism, and then you've got another group of people who are you know sort of I guess unconcerned about climate change. You know, it just and and these and and these are not just people who go to church. This is people in broader society. They're one of my colleagues at the University of Tasmania did a PhD actually on unconcern about climate change. You know, people who are really nice people, getting on with life, but just not particularly concerned about it. And maybe that's because they don't know much about it uh, or maybe they're just unconcerned and they do and they've got other things, uh, other priorities. And then you've got certainly a group of people who are very concerned and think that actually there's, as humans, we've got a significant responsibility to act on it. But as Christian uh, people, they also see that we've got a God-given responsibility to look after creation. Also that they're perhaps not surprised by humans' mis stewarding the planet and that's that's where i would be at that i think a fair reading of the bible would suggest that we shouldn't be surprised when we as a human race do very badly by the planet and um and the environment around us but we should also at the same time be doubling down to go well but we're tasked with the stewarding and the caring for so let's not just sort of hand ourselves and the world over to sort of decay and uh, destruction, but actually let's work towards its preservation and protection as a good thing. And so, you know, um, in, in the church we've got a, a big conversation that's been going on, but hopefully over time people are drifting towards just taking the environment a bit more seriously than perhaps they have in the past.
0: And uh, obviously we're hitting on a topic that can be pretty difficult to talk about, and for many it can even be a source of despair, could you perhaps share a few things that you're hopeful and optimistic about?
1: Yeah, look, it's, it seems like we're going to avoid the worst of climate change. Um, so not very long ago, we were on a trajectory towards, I don't know, six or seven degrees warming by the end of the century. You know, that's that's sort of mass extinction. Um, probably ultimately a dramatically reduced uh, human population. Certainly, vastly different planet to what my generation grew up with. Within decades. Um, so it seems like we're going to avoid that and that's a really good news story. And the commitments that are from governments at the moment have us optimistically being able to to keep the climate below about two degrees warming uh, above pre-industrial levels. Um, pre-industrial means before the industrial revolution. So two degrees warming of the entire planet is still an enormous amount of energy that's been stored in the planet that didn't used to be. Um, an enormous amount of heat, but at two degrees it sort of prevents the worst. It would be much better if it was more like one and a half degrees. In fact, it would be much better if it was zero, but we're not going to get to zero any soon. So there's there's hope in that. Uh, of course, the governments need to, and the humanity as a whole, needs to actually deliver on its commitments, but there are commitments there to keep us to about two degrees. We need to push that a little bit harder. The other thing that um, is hopeful is that there's just a rapid change in uh, that it's going on, even just in the last few years in terms of energy production, the rapid growth of electric vehicles. Yeah, our technology is rapidly advancing. Policies can turn the dial very quickly on the generation of renewable energies uh, and the decommissioning of coal and gas as energy sources. Clearly that needs to be done in a well-managed way and it would have been better if that, that had started, you know, a couple of decades ago and with greater uh, ambition. But it's underway and I feel like there's momentum growing. And the third thing is really is that big business is very serious about this. Um, big business now is required to report on its own climate risks in its financial reporting. There are billions of dollars around the world now being considered in terms of is that a wise investment or not a, a, a or a really good investment? Is there an, an opportunity to actually earn money? People are actually thinking about climate change in that context now. And so once business gets into it, rather than sort of being at the de- denial of climate change into the spectrum, but actually being, here's a financial opportunity that can actually give people jobs and all those sorts of things, well, then I think we'll see uh, even more rapid progress in this area. So there's some areas for hope.
0: And uh, at the moment, um, the, the label greenwashing is something that you see a bit with big business as well. Um, do you feel like people are actually wanting to follow through on their pledges or do you feel like it's kind of smoke and mirrors?
1: Oh, look, in some cases it's smoke and mirrors, but those people will be found out because there are not stupid people watching the financial reports or the annual reports from these companies and shareholders are most definitely paying very close attention to what's going on. So just mere messaging and greenwashing won't cut it for very long. Uh, Serious action will be uh, required by people and, you know, people listening to the podcast, I hope, will be part of that story and actually holding, you know, their superannuation companies to to account about what they're actually doing in terms of their own investments in that. You mentioned as well, there are things to be optimistic and hopeful
0: about. Um, and so we can uh, get the balance between feeling optimistic and using the technology we have available to us, um, making the right decisions with things like our our super, uh, the people that we vote in, those sorts of things. Um, but also, yeah, being um, wanting to do better and um, apply things to mitigate the, the risks, don't we?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, it's wrong to have the entirely pessimistic view, but if you also have the entirely optimistic view, there's something not quite right as well, because, um, there are impacts as well as opportunities.
0: So to wrap up today's show, Matt, uh, what are three resources that you would recommend for people who want to find out more on this topic?
1: Yeah. So, so I've got three, three websites actually. Um, so one of them is for the person who's, Still a bit sceptical about climate change, and there's a fantastic resource called SkepticalScience.org, which really just tackles head-on um, the really common sceptical questions about you know isn't it just the sun um, that's causing climate change, or you know hasn't this all happened before, um, and it sort of digs into the where the wrong thinking is in some of those things, and actually what the science behind uh, the answers are, and you can drill down to you know a beginner's level or a intermediate level. So the SkepticalScience.org is out there. That's great. Another one, if you just want to keep an eye on where governments are up to uh, in terms of their pledges, in terms of carbon reduction, is CarbonActionTracker.org, CarbonActionTracker.org. And it just has some really simple infographics that shows where are we actually up to with our climate commitments, what have been embedded in policy, what have been legislated, and so you can see where we are uh, and that's just a that's a great resource you wouldn't be looking at that every week necessarily but certainly once a year you could have a keep an eye on that um, and then if you wanted to dig into what some Christians are thinking about and and trying to get action going in terms of a more serious response to climate change you can go to creationcare.org and that you know so there's some thinking there about the way in which you know people should be viewing creation and, and caring for it in a way that is thoughtful and consistent with what, um, you know, Christians, for instance, would, would believe.
0: Wonderful. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Matt, and uh pleasure having you on the show. Great to be with you. Does God care about rising sea levels? Typically, the vastness of the ocean has represented a place of chaos, fear, indomitable power, and death in religious literature. The Bible also sees it that way, but with one noticeable difference, by suggesting that there is a God who made it all and rules over it completely. I suspect many people think God is pretty irrelevant when it comes to climate change. You may think he's non-existent, or that if he is there, then he's detached and unconcerned with humanity's affairs. Or maybe you think he's responsible in some way, that the Christian worldview has left a legacy of environmental recklessness and destruction an attitude of rapaciousness and ambivalence towards our breathtaking wildlife and finite natural resources. And maybe some of that is true historically. But for me, the Bible continues to offer a narrative of life, breath, introspection and soul-searching, one that centres on the earth being made as a vibrant, visually stunning and abundant place for us, a feast for the senses and a gift to be cherished, cultivated and cautiously managed as good stewards but also an expression, an extension of God's love, his creativity, and his lavishness towards us. And with that comes an obligation, a responsibility, to not only care for what God has made, but also to care for the people that live on it and depend on it, to love our neighbour, to love our future neighbour, to love justice and to look out for the poor, vulnerable, and voiceless, to manage our world so that everyone can enjoy its bounty, Not to dump our pollution, our problems and our concerns onto those who will quietly suffer the cost, but to promote a world that champions the fullness of life. Matt and I talked about these things. We also talked briefly about the idea of sin and how rejecting God leads to things going badly for the human race. And climate change is the exact sort of thing you would expect from humans who regularly cut corners, deny wrongdoing and kill the golden goose. The allure of power... Wealth and status can make us ignorant and deceptive and heartless even. And when these vices start to have catastrophic consequences, well, I think the doctrine of sin starts to look pretty compelling as a way of understanding humanity. Christianity is unafraid of giving evil a name and has the artillery to fight it too. But the catch is that we're all capable of being that person in the right circumstances. The last book of the Bible talks about God destroying those who destroy the earth. And so those who have knowingly inflicted lies and destruction on others will be held to account, while those who can't find refuge from injustice can find it in the person of Christ, an offer freely available to any of us. The one who walked on water also promises a place in heaven where there is no sea, where chaos, atrophy and death will be forgotten in the new creation. But what we do now matters. We've seemingly reached a precipitous moment in the fight against climate change. And this week's episode was pretty heavy in parts, but I hope you'll come away slightly more hopeful, slightly more invigorated, and slightly more receptive to how Christians might think about this salient topic, knowing that God does care about rising sea levels and he cares about you too. But more on that in future episodes. We hope you'll tune in again as we continue to probe the depths and peaks of human experience and understanding. I'm your host for this week, Aaron Johnstone, and this was Deeper Questions. If you like this episode, then subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can check out some of our other content at thirdspace.org.au.